There's a double meaning in that. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. It's good to be back with you all again, here to talk about some of theater's best scripts. Looking forward to today's conversation. We got a return to a playwright who we've talked about on the show before, and it, we're, we're just fans of. So I'm yeah. stoked to get oh to talk about him again. Gosh, yeah. We are talking about a play by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, who is one of those playwrights that is truly, truly shaping what drama is today. I mean, you know, offhand, you probably could come up with that list of five or ten, I mean, in America, American playwrights that are shaping American drama, actively setting the course for what drama is, what it can do, imagining its future. And there is no world in which you could leave Brandon Jacob Jenkins off that list. He has to be on that list. Yeah, absolutely. He plays with theater themes. He plays with theater culture. He plays with meaningful cultural themes uh, in his plays and provides such a good space to kind of grapple with uh, grapple with themes that are, are, are uncomfortable, that are funny, that are sometimes ugly. Um, that, that Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to kind of get into some of his play uh, appropriate today. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, his play appropriate or appropriate, just depending on how you yeah, want to Yeah, that's it. interesting. Right, I think yeah. we should start when it, when the time comes. Let's start there because yeah. I it, I'm not actually sure with, uh, how he intends the pronunciation of the title, and it does it matters some as as we'll see when we get there. But I just want to say because you mentioned Brandon Jacob Jenkins doing such an incredible job talking about theater. Uh, I'm sorry, let me leave theater off. Talking about themes that are uncomfortable to deal with, that matter, and they matter so much that they're hard to talk about. Yeah, And we are now on our second Brandon Jacob Jenkins play. We talked about Gloria. And Gloria is a spectacular example of a very uncomfortable play. Yeah. Uh, and a spectacular, For a lot of reasons. The, yeah, right. And it's been the chatterbox of the theater world Gloria has. And so it was great to talk about. And this play is also deeply uncomfortable. It just is. And it's about uncomfortable things. And it asks us to face them head on and in the, the light of day and the dark of night in this play, which is an interesting back and forth that I'm sure we'll talk about. But to, to have talked about two Brandon Jacob Jenkins plays and to both of them be that sort of uh, just make you squirm a yeah. little kind of drama just speaks to how important, how relevant they are. Yeah, yeah, to, to kind of hold that that uncomfortability and tension. Um, it's, it's something unique that theater can do and that Jenkins knows how to uh, utilize to the best of, of theater's ability. So I'm excited to get to jump into the conversation around it. Before we do, I want to take just a second and talk about our themed month that's coming up really soon. Are we a week out right now? Yeah. yeah, we are. Next week, we begin a, a month of plays. Of course, everybody knows about the theme month every season. Season, we spend a month, we talk about plays that, ha that share something in common. And what they share in common is sometimes very loose and sometimes very specific. And in this case, it's a very specific thing, which is that these four plays that we will talk about share a playwright, David Henry Huang, uh, another one of those playwrights that is active, a contemporary American playwright, setting the stage for what theater is in America. Uh, I'm very excited to talk about four plays by David Henry Huang across the next four weeks, the month of April. April 2022, if you listen as it comes out. If not, know that this is a catalog of our April 2022, looking <laughs> back on the podcast. Yes, yes. I'm excited to get to talk about some more David Henry Huang plays. We've, we've done him on the on the podcast before. Excited to get to return to him. So bookmark it. It's coming up starting next week. We'll be spending a month in that themed month. So get excited for that. And... Themed months in general and just this uh, ability of ours to have conversations with all of you about theater's best scripts would not be possible without our patrons over at patreon.com slash no script podcast. Thank you all so much for being patrons of the show. We are completely patron supported um, and we just so appreciate that you have decided to help out the podcast in this way. We love getting to do this show. We love getting to have these conversations and the patrons make it happen with helping out with things like podcasting, hosting fees, uh, 
script prices and and all and all the considerable time that goes into the show. Thank you all so much for being a part of the community in that way. If you're looking for a way to help out No Script, whether you are just logging on to this uh, to this show for the first time and enjoying the conversation so far, um, or if you have been a longtime listener of the show and just looking for a way to kind of get involved in the community a little bit more, patreoncom podcast is a great way to do that. You find a number of different tiers of membership. The lowest being just one dollar, twelve dollars over the course of the year. So if you're looking for a way to help out the show, that is an awesome way to do it. Thank you to those who have already made the choice, and we will see you over on patreoncom podcast. And now back to the script. Here we go. Okay. Hey, so we've done Brandon Jacob Jenkins before. As we said, when we talked about Gloria, I'll just briefly touch on who he is. Contemporary American playwright. He's on faculty at UT Austin, one of the great playwriting theater programs in the country. Um, He's a MacArthur fellow. He's a Pulitzer Prize finalist. Big deal guy. If you've never picked up a Brandon Jacob Jenkins play, please do it. Gloria or appropriate would be great to pick up because you can listen to these conversations and participate with us about them online afterwards. But, uh, you know, just pick one out of a hat if that suits your fantasy. They are all great. He's a spectacular playwright. This play has a kind of a unique world premiere situation. It uh, had a co-world premiere, both at the Humana Festival, which is out of the Actors Theater of Louisville. We're big fans of the Humana Festival. Lots of the scripts that we do, the the more contemporary scripts, have come out of the Humana Festival. Um, But it was also co-world premiered at the Victory Garden in Chicago. And uh, it was by the same director. I think that's the co-relationship and also about the release. So the same director, Gary Griffin, uh, directed both productions at the Humana Festival and at the Victory Garden in Chicago, but they did not share many other elements. The cast was different. The production team was different. So this was not a situation where the world premiere production was then toured. These were separate productions of the same play um, that introduced appropriate or appropriate to the world. It then went on. That was 2013. It went on to play at the Woolly Mammoth Theater in D.C. later in 2013. What you're about to hear are like the some of the major uh, stops for theater in the in the higher level produ- professional industry. Woolly Mammoth in D.C., the Signature Theater in New York City, the Center Theater Group in Los Angeles. It's had its London premiere at the Dahmer Warehouse uh, in 2019. The play won the Obie Award for Best New American Play in 2000. It was the you know it won it technically in 2015, but it was for the 2014 theater season. Um, and, and it, it like Gloria has sort of swept the country. Um, lots of, uh, it has been produced in lots of other scenarios and settings because of its, um, to be really honest, one of the reasons why it gets produced a lot and why a lot of places consider it is that it is a play by uh, a black playwright that, uh, that white actors can participate in the production of. Um, and, and so there are a lot of situations in which that is a really attractive a thing about this script. Yeah, no, it's true. It's a, it's a, it's a, all the characters in it are played by white actors. So yeah, it, that is, that is part of it. And, and also just the accessibility of the play. It's all done, uh, in, in, you know, a room of a house, a room or two, uh, depending on how you want to stage it. It's a very producible play. It has a lot of great variation in the age of the characters. So that all leans into how this play continues to be produced and is, and also just the themes, which I'm excited to get to jump into. Um, I am going to synopsize the play real quick. Right at the top here, I am just going to give just a, a, bit of a content warning for this play. As we said in the beginning, uh, th- a lot of what uh, Jacob Jenkins does in his plays is create a, a safe space for a lot of feelings, but specifically for uh, ugly feelings. Um, and this play has some of those ugly feelings in it. Um, this play deals with uh, race, deals with race in the South in Arkansas on a plantation, um, deals with uh, uh, sexual misconduct issues in the play. So there's, there's a lot of uh, pretty weighty themes mixed in a pretty, uh, uh, oftentimes comedic, oftentimes uh, brutal play. So if, if some of those themes don't sound like what you want to listen to today, this is your warning right now. we got a bunch of other uh, great podcasts, over 100 podcasts on a bunch of other plays, but we're going to be ju- jumping into some pretty weighty themes as we engage this discussion. So just a heads up on that as we are getting started. So let's jump into the synopsis of the play real quick. As I mentioned, uh, this the setting of the play takes place on a play t- plantation somewhere in southeast Arkansas. The, the time is nonspecific, but it is summer. 
Um, so summer in the kind of south of Arkansas, the cicadas open the play, uh, like uh, just a chorus of cicadas. We'll talk about a bunch about the cicadas later. Um, and uh, just a, a long scene of that. And then we are slowly introduced to this family. The family is made up of three siblings, Tony, um, who is the oldest sibling in her 40s or 50s, Bo, uh, similarly aged, uh, he's, in, he's uh, in his 40s and 50s, and uh, Franz, or Frank, um, who is in his 30s, uh, 30s or 40s, so a little bit younger of the siblings. Um, their father, Ray, who owned this building and, and had bought it to try to like start a, or not really bought it, it was in their family for generations, but had returned to it to try to start like an Airbnb there, um, has died. And, and and they're down there to try to uh, take account of the estate and also kind of move it towards selling off the estate, whatever that ends up looking like. The first scene, we meet uh, Frank and his fiance, River, who uh, are climbing in through a window of the estate. Um, they're, they're trying to get in to sleep there for the night. They know something about... Uh, uh, the events that are going to happen, but it's clear that they weren't necessarily invited. Um, they meet Rice, who is Tony's son, um, and uh, there's some uh, inter uh, uh, conversation between them. Eventually, Tony comes downstairs and is shocked that Frank is here. Um, we, we begin to see that there's some tension between Tony and Frank, and uh, throughout the course of the next couple scenes, we learn more about that tension. Frank has been estranged from the family for a long time. We learn about some sort of an addiction that he has gone through. He's been separated from the family for about 10 years, and this is kind of the first time that Frank has returned to the family. The uh, second scene, we meet uh, Bo and his family. Bo uh, is married to Rachel and has two children, Cassidy and Ainsley, and they kind of, we, we meet them throughout the course of the scene. We also learn a lot more about River, who is with Frank in kind of like a supporting role. River is quite a bit younger than Frank. She's in her early 20s, but they are engaged to be married. And uh, the, so we learn a little bit more about them, and we start to start to... Um, piece together just the level of dysfunction of this family. Especially Tori has a lot of anger towards Frank and why is he here? How dare he come back? And we just begin to learn more and more and more about him throughout the scene. We also learn a lot more about uh, Rachel and, and, and her relationship with the family as kind of an in-law throughout the scene as they try to navigate why Frank is back. Bo has talked to River. He comes back in and says reasons why they're there. Um, he, they, they claim that it's not for the selling of the estate but in fact, because Frank missed out on uh, the funeral because he's been out of touch with the family. And so this is his chance to try to like grieve the loss of his father. During this scene, they are trying to organize just a bunch of stuff in the house into sellable piles for some sort of an estate sale that is coming up. Um, and uh, at one point, uh, Rachel hands a photo album to her young child, Ainsley, who is like a child, a young child, to look through this photo album. And during the conversation back and forth, there's a lot of uh, conflict around Frank. Um, Rachel eventually looks over the shoulder of Ainsley and discovers that there are some pretty alarming pictures in the book. We don't really know what these pictures are until the end of the scene. The end of the scene goes by and she's just, just shocked at the content of the pictures. Um, the, the next scene comes up and, and it has a lot to do with dealing with this photo album, which contains pretty graphic pictures of, of people who are, are dead, of, of African-American people who have died. Eventually they, uh, ascertain that this is likely a part like pictures from a lynching or some sort of killing of people and 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 so there's this alarming content in this photo album and this sends the family into uh, a reckoning for them they they try to figure out what is going on why did why did ray have this photo album of of people in it and 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 uh rachel begins to bring up a lot of her grievances with ray um ray was uh behaved towards her in what she perceived as a pretty racist manner often she is of uh, jewish heritage and received some uh racism from him in that and there's uh lots of uh of kind of angry defense from tori for her father who just refuses to acknowledge that there was anything really wrong with her father. In the middle of the scene, Frank comes down and is looking through the photo album as well, and it becomes clear that he's here to kind of apologize and forgive, both for his uh, discrepancies as, um, as, a, as an addict of both alcohol and drugs, and also his sexual misconduct in, in his early days. He's here to apologize for all of it and try to kind of work out some of his recovery with River there to help him. 
Um, again, Tori is not on board with this. She does not ex accept any of the apologies. Bo tries to, but uh, is uh, uh, Tori doesn't isn't on board with that either. They end the scene, uh, kind of working up uh, to this auction that is coming. It becomes clear that there's a lot riding on it. We've got. Uh, certainly just, just, uh, uh, Tony's need to be kind of, uh, repaid for her, uh, caretaking of her father and also Frank. We have Bo who is in it for, uh, he's, he's, looks like he's going to lose his job soon. So he kind of needs the money in some ways to come back from that. There's a lot riding on the sale of the house. Um, then we hit act two and, uh, Tori comes home after having left that previous scene, um, pretty angry, uh, just, just leaving and kind of leaving everyone to their own devices. Tori comes back pretty drunk. Um, she has a conversation with, uh, with River and with Cassidy about the photo album. She sees Cassidy, who's been trying to get at the photo album throughout the, much of the play so far, reading the photo album and kind of gets her to get rid of it or thinks she does. Cassidy ends up not getting rid of it and returning to the room, sneaking in the room and hearing all of the following conversation. And you have uh, a bunch more conflict. We'll get into the conflict. There's a bunch more conflict <laughs> that Tori brings up with Bo around River. And River claims that she is pregnant with Frank's kid. And there's a lot of mistrust for River. So that kind of continues through this second scene. Notably, the photo album continues to kind of switch hands throughout. Eventually, Cassidy gives it to Rice, who comes downstairs. Um... We learn uh, in a conversation between Rice and Tori that Tori has done something, but we don't know what yet, something kind of big, um, but we're not really sure what it is. Rice then has the photo album, and Frank comes downstairs. There's a, a bit of a uh, exchange between them as uh, Frank thinks that he has caught Rice in in uh, using the book in uh, un, uh, not a great way, basically, to, <laughs> to kind of please himself in, in, in an unhealthy way. Um, and... Uh, so he takes the book from him. Now uh, Frank has the book <laughs> and it's out of the room. The next scene is the next day. It's auction day. They're trying to get everything ready. Tori's hungover, but eventually says that she has canceled the auction. There's no, they're not going to have it. She's taken down all the signs and no one's coming. Uh, Bo is on the phone with like a museum director or something and discovers that the pictures in the photo album could be worth quite a lot of money. So they're trying to find the photo album. Eventually they piece out where it went. Frank took it. Frank comes back dripping wet, having been in the lake. He has taken the, he has gone on kind of a, a, a walk through the woods trying to figure out what to do with, um, <laughs> with this photo album and eventually drowned it in the, in the lake. Much to everyone's chagrin, uh, because it's worth quite a bit of money. The family continues to kind of build in this fervor. Rachel and uh, Tori have been at each other's throats for much of the scenes because Tori will not admit that she uh, that her father had anything wrong with him, and Rachel uh, will not, wants to kind of press into that a little bit. So there's actually a physical fight in this scene where basically the whole family is at each other's throats, uh, kicking and fighting each other. That kind of culminates the scene. The next scene is everyone beginning to leave. Um, uh, you have Frank come back with the photo album completely soaked and unusable. Tori and Frank and uh, <laughs> Bo all have this conversation where they basically say, we're never going to see each other again. And that's, you know, we're, we're really broken up about it and whatever. Bye. Um, uh, Bo leaves the scene really uh, distraught. Rachel kind of has to help him out of there uh, into the car and they leave uh, for New York again. Then uh, a final scene of the play is this kind of uh, the house decaying. Um, it describes uh, lots of flashing scenes of this house just slowly devolving over time of rocks being thrown over it. It's a windstorm and a tree breaks in. Eventually someone comes in and appraises it, someone we haven't ever seen before, and kind of shines a flashlight around and that's the end of the play. So there's, there's a lot of family drama packed into it and I haven't even touched on everything that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's it's just this full to bursting play of of this family uh, in a really intense moment of their lives trying to grapple with uh, secrets of of their father and what their father maybe uh, the prejudices that he had or his involvement in in, uh, in in racist behaviors in the South and what they're going to do with that as they discover. I mean, they discover a clan hood. Yeah. In yep. the house, a remnant. Now, you know, different characters claim that they don't think it was their dad. They didn't seem like him. I, I think the play, it doesn't, you know, land on a strong, they don't, they don't discover insurmountable evidence, but it, 
it does. I mean, I do think the viewpoint of the play is that this stuff probably belonged to their dad and that they don't that this these these kids don't really understand the the prejudices, the hatred, the violent culture to which their father may have belonged. And they're coming to terms with learning this about their father. At the same time, they tell stories that make you wonder if they should not have maybe known this all along. I, yeah. I, I think of the story Bo tells about going to college with their dad. And he, he moved into a suite where one of the roommates was black and his father very intentionally told him, yeah, you know, watch your stuff. Don't let your stuff get stolen. And so, uh, you know, the, the, uh, Bo's wife, Rachel, expresses that she's heard him say anti-Semitic things. And so the the evidence piles and piles up that not only was their father an out-and-out out racist, I mean, had a clan hood in his house racist, Yeah, but also that... There, there was some possibility that they should have known this. That that they 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 have not adequately dealt with the evidence that they had at hand even before this play begins. Yeah, well, there's there's so much of that sort of vibe in the family in general that they have lived through yeah. so much <laughs> pain <laughs> with each other that that they that they don't like look at each other anymore. That they can't look at each other anymore or be there for each other in the way that each other needs from them anymore. And to the point that like the way that the evidence keeps coming out um, is, is like it's, 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 it makes their uh, rebuttals to uh, whether these are their fathers or not almost like denial because <laughs> just the, basically every time one of the kids goes up to try to clean out dad's room a little bit more, they come back with something else that is like, oh, oh no, you found that up there. Well, surely that's just you, that's just someone else's. So so it's it's almost like this uh, unwillingness to actually see what's happening because of the fair amount of trauma that this family has put each other through. You're, you're totally right. That's the word that I should have used as I was saying what I was saying was denial. It's not yeah. that they, they, they have failed to grasp the evidence. It's that there, there is some world in which the, these three adult children have been actively in denial about who their father was, you know, is, if you believe it in afterlife, but was certainly while he was alive. Uh, and, and that their denial about that and so many other things that surface in this play sort of all at once, which is what leads to the cacophony and ultimately to violence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the violence is just like so, so like you've been in this pressure cooker for so long because these, especially, I, I don't know, especially Tori, like, like Bo has his moments where he is, he is uh, abrasive and, and pushing, but Tori like owns that older sibling um, just, uh, aggression <laughs> like the, the 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 trope of the aggressive older sibling is Tori and she just does not let up pressure on anyone for the for the whole play and is just kind of pushing and pushing and pushing on each other just the, the one of the one of the, the big scenes um is is uh, Frank's apology that she just and, and there's there's plenty of water under the bridge there right I think I think later on in the play we get a little bit more sympathetic to her side of the argument that she can't accept his apology but but in the moment, it's a really heartfelt apology from Frank, pretty grace-filled, pretty open to discussion, and she just is not having it. Um, yeah, so to it's, the point where when Bo accepts the apology, accepts the forgiveness, she sort of says, that, that apology isn't yours to accept. I'm the one he should be apologizing yeah. to. It's mine. It's my apology, and I don't accept it. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, and and the 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 kind of visceral nature of her uh, her relationship with Rachel in the play too. Um, uh, Rachel kind of over and over uh, it, in in the one scene where she's coming uh, not coming after but naming uh, Ray's uh, racist behavior towards her kind of says what Ray said to her and and uh, Tori says it to Rachel. She says it back to her again, calls her the same names again to try to get her to leave the room. So it's just this, it's this full court press from Tori um, through, through the play in, in lots of uh, kind of visceral, uh, verbally violent, but then eventually physically violent ways. 
And and to be real honest with you, throughout the play, the the level to which everyone brings so much pain and so much conflict and confrontation to the table, scene after scene, um, it, it, a lot and lots of reviewers have echoed this. It feels like there is an intentional exaggeration being made on the part of Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, and one you know world in which we can understand what happens to. The these characters river helps us understand perhaps w- one view of this so right she's the outsider to the family um nobody in this play is like the innocent character including river but but she does have an outside perspective that i think gives the audience some accessibility to what's going on with this these very high context relationships otherwise and so they're discussing this confrontation they've just had with tony they just then they uh, this is after the apology thing and uh then they learn that tony was divorced that her son has been got in trouble with the law and been expelled she lost her job because of her what her son did you know her life's been really bad as of late and and tony would say for a long time uh and and so they're discussing this why that interaction went so badly what's happened river says uh it sounds like tony has demons of her own to deal with she's much scarier than you described frank says she's scarier than i remember river says it must be this house there's so much pain here you all just have to get this place out of your bones yeah there's a there's a lot of kind of river brings a lot of that theme of like this place is bad there's something bad about this place um and and she experiences that in kind of like a a spiritual uh metaphysical sort of way um she experiences ghosts and things like that or at least feelings um that that she that she attributes when she grabs the photo album for the first time she kind of cries out and drops it um so so she has this kind of like sense of this place is bad and it's doing bad things to you <laughs> and we see that that is pretty true um at least at least as much as this place has caused so much pain in this family that they cannot operate in anything but pain towards each other um i i think that's pretty true there's not really a moment there's there's a couple moments maybe between bo and frank where it's like oh oh there's some tenderness um but but for the most part they just they 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 can't be around each other in this place without causing each other more pain yeah, and, and the environment of the house, of this plantation, is so crucial to the play. I mean, it there's not one, but two graveyards on the property, for example. And, and one graveyard is the folks who ran the plantation forever, and the tombstones in that graveyard have been collapsed over time, knocked down perhaps by neighborhood kids, or Frank says maybe even by me when I was drunk or high and I didn't remember or whatever. But there's a metaphor to that, right? These white uh, oligarchical uh, slave master descent families, their tombstones have been knocked over. Simultaneously, in a different part of the property are a series of unmarked graves where the slaves were buried. And I think you can sort of see the metaphoric similarity of the tombstones being knocked down. Meanwhile, there's a, an unmarked grave on the other side of the property. And, and the way that this legacy of torture, I mean, uh, of the torture, this of lynching of slaves manifests itself physically in so many different ways, right? The, the actual photo book that haunts their lives throughout this play, the clan hood that appears and terrifies them to their core the house falling apart in the uh, the sequence at the end of the play in a physical, visual way, but the relationships of the family that are what makes the house a home, to be a little uh, nostalgic about it, falling apart throughout the course of the play. I mean, the, I think that one of the things this play is doing is saying the legacy of pain and torture on this plantation cannot be avoided by this family. They cannot just have the ancestry of privilege that they're not just going to sell this house and make a ton of money off of it and live the rest of their lives happy the legacy of pain here is it it it, it reaps itself in their lives 
Yeah, it's so profound that they can't recover from it, that that it's kind of worked their way, its way into them so much that they can't exist together in that way. In that way, uh, Jacob Jenkins is is doing like a, a great riff on the family play, right? It's it's really similar to a lot of Miller play. It's a really similar to a lot of Chekhov. Chekhov is uh, an epigraph at the start of this play. Um, the cherry orchard is quoted. Um, so to so August you, Osage County. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have this, 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 like this, this similar, uh, similar theme of the family play of these, this family that has caused so much pain to each other that that they can't operate with e- with with each other. But I think like your comment earlier about people reviewing this play and and feeling it's like uh, uh, an exaggeration sometimes of some of these characters. I think that's mostly because we're hearing it in our language, like the the level to which these characters go. We expect that in a Miller play. We expect a Miller play to push us to that degree. We may be expected to a lesser degree in Chekhov because there's often a lot of brooding in Chekhov before we get to <laughs> get to the heightened levels but but this play is is kind of spoken in contemporary vernacular a, a story in our language with that same level of intensity that Miller brings to some of his plays with these family plays that are so ingrained into each other that have caused so much pain to each other but still continue to push at each other and try to find some common ground to stand on and whether they do or not is kind of the exciting part of the family drama and and you mentioned the cherry orchard and the the quote from the cherry orchard that is in the beginning of our copy of the scripts and this play the legacy of the cherry orchard and this play i think are are very much tied together and you know you can enjoy appreciate it and get a ton out of appropriate without understanding the cherry orchard i don't think they're they're necessary for each other. But I do think that the way the Cherry Orchard discusses the legacy of slavery and domination in, that that built the, or the Cherry Orchard plantation in that play and the way that this play echoes that idea is it lends a lot of understanding to what's going on. And that maybe brings us back well to the point that we said we were going to talk about right away, um, which is the title of the play. So now Uh, we get to it halfway (laughs) in. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the the title of the play being appropriate and appropriate is a nice kind of uh, dub. There's a double meaning in that. um, It's a pun, right? uh, The the title is a pun, not a funny pun, but it is a pun in that the multiple definitions impact multiple understandings. Um, And I think it's significant enough that if, if I were directing this, play, um, I would want to find a way to communicate this intentional pun to the audience, because I really think having it at the beginning of the script matters because it impacts how you start experiencing the story. Yeah, yeah. And and I like, too, that both themes are there <laughs> in the play. Like there isn't I, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe I'd, I'd be interested to hear your opinion, but I don't know that there's like one definition to land on. Um, the word. No, works. We've, we've said, in fact, I don't know how yeah. you should pronounce the title. It'd be interesting to hear Brandon Jacob Jenkins tell us, should the title be appropriate, the adjective or appropriate the verb? Yeah, yeah, because because there's so much of both going on in the play. Um, there's so much question of what is appropriate behavior, um, and what what is considered appropriate. Tori grapples with this, with uh, refusing to believe that her father had anything less than appropriate behavior or anything, uh, any sort of prejudiced behavior in his background. We also have the question of you know Frank's very inappropriate behavior through the course of the play. We find out that he didn't just have, uh, just uh, di- didn't just have a generic sexual misconduct but a very specific pedophilic uh, sexual misconduct in his past, something that River doesn't know. And that's another secret that, that's discovered in the play. So there's a lot of questions about what's appropriate for people to, to how, how, or what, what behavior is appropriate for people to have and whether family can exist with a lack of that appropriateness. Right, and so that's the adjective appropriate definition. Then, of course, there's the verb appropriate and the definitions that are stuck in at the beginning of the script to take for oneself. Uh, I'm not going to read them all, but to take for oneself, to take possession of, to take without permission or consent, to seize, to uh, to seize. Uh, so, uh, you know, th- this... This world in which we live between these dual definitions where everything could mean one thing and could mean another, that I think is very much what this play is. It is on face value a family dysfunction play, but it also means something else. And that something else comes from the house, the legacy of 
the torture and murder of slaves and black people across American history. That all of that meaning comes in as well. Which is why it's, I think, a, such a compelling choice to not allow the house to be sold off at the end of the play, to not allow anyone to really wash their hands of it. So it's interesting how it comes about, right? Because it comes about from Tory basically saying that we're not going to get any, we're not going to keep trying to get money from this thing. We're just going to, I'm going to kind of undermine the two of you and take away the auction and just like stick us with this house. Um, and, and yet they are, they leave the house. That's the whole point of that last, that last whole scene of seeing the house eventually decay is that no one ever came back. Um, basically, or at least that's, that's, that's my interpretation of it. This, the stage directions kind of say these scenes are throughout time, could be the future, could be the past, could be the present. Um, but it's, it's just the, the story of the house. Um, so, so it's just interesting to note that, 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 that sort of tension is held in perpetuity by not resolving the the kind of selling of the house. It continues outside of the bounds of the play, too. Well, let's talk about the beginning and end of the show because there's so much a part of what is going on and and he's put so much intention and effort into how he describes the play beginning because it begins with this cicada chorus right and it ends with this time jumping nature taking back over the house falling apart sort of montage and and you know you could start if if you're a playwright writing a play like this you could just start with the stage directions the noise of cicadas and then the moonlight and we see somebody but that that is is not what Brandon Jacobs Jenkins writes. He writes, I'm just going to give you some snippets of the, what he calls the prologue, a whole scene, not just the stage directions into scene one, but the prologue scene in and of itself. Uh, a billion cicadas trilling in the dense velvety void. Uh, I'm just, I'm skipping around. So this is not the, the, an exact quote. The insect song fills and sweeps the theater, pulsing, uh, ev filling every nook, every pocket, hiding place and pouring. Incessant chatter is touching you. It's touching you. It goes on and on. Everybody's thinking, is this it? Is this the whole show? And then scene one begins. And that's just a little preview of the cicada yeah. description from the end of the play. Yeah, which which has just a beautiful, like, full paragraph plus of stage directions. Just a beautiful Many paragraph. Many paragraphs, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, the whole scene goes takes up, like, three pages of my script. Um, but, yeah, the cicadas return, and then the cicadas lead into this scene of... Uh, lights coming up and going down of showing the living room and it's it's various stages of of decay knocking on the door and uh someone answering you have another blackout and the floor collapses under the sofa that's going to be a fun thing for the stage crew to try to figure out how to do um you got you got all these things this decay of the house tree branches breaking in rocks being thrown by children outside etc that kind of uh swirl us into the the decay of this house Yes, I totally. The the house montage section, tr uh, tr true, yes. But I, I don't want to just skip the cicada section here. Yeah, Because yeah, I, yeah. I want to figure out, like, or at least imagine what these cicadas are about. Because I gave you the hugely full prologue description of the cicadas from the beginning, and they're just a preview of the cicada section that, that you know, begins the final scene of the play, which is the house montage, right? So it's the cicadas, they go on singing, and then this is just touchstones, right? I'm not, I'm not quoting, I'm just skipping around um, an entirely improvised ancient song about flying around what it's like to fly around about loving each other and hating each other the sounds of each other's voices but mostly about the noise and the grass and the sky and the air but also about the sap and the branches and the sweetness of the sap but also the trees themselves uh, the the feeling of missing the thing you can never go back to the the mystery of the way one moves away from it the trees on the grass and the grass and the dirt and the dirt and dying and we can't understand a word of it yeah. So it, it's it is a long description of the cicada, what the song of the cicadas means, and it ends with and we can't understand a word of it, and it goes then into this description of the house falling apart over years and years and years. So these cicadas are so significant, and they're not not just in the stage directions. They play it. The characters mention them too. This is set in like one of those years of the cicadas, right? Where a certain group of cicadas hatches from these 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 ecosystems that they've been sort of uh, uh, living in as eggs and shells, and they had. You know, everybody knows about cicadas. I think uh, once yeah. every so many years, a certain batch of cicadas comes out, and they cover everything. 
uh, you know, if you've been around for one, if you're not like only a few years old, <laughs> you've been around for one and they're just everywhere. And then they, you know, they have babies and those babies get in the soil and it's only, you know, it's however many more years before that happens again. And so this play takes place during one of those years of the cicadas and they are just everywhere. The characters describe outside the house, they are just covering things. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a scene with Frank that uh, that he goes out in the middle of the night and he walks through a grove of trees that is just covered with these living bugs. And that's part of the reason why he kind of pushes and, and runs off to the lake to try to cleanse himself of them. Um, but yeah, what, so so you said you said before I think about uh, the word appropriate and wanting to be sure the the audience has some way to grapple with the word and its definitions. How so these these beautiful scenes right are, are those beautiful stage descriptions are written for the reader um, to to experience. Um, how how do we grapple with them as the audience or as a production team? How do we communicate the level of depth that is going on and that in what you just described, this beautiful description of what is happening in the sound over and above just like the buzzing of cicadas? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, uh, luckily, I'm not a sound designer, so I think you, you, if you're the director, you you hope that a sound designer has a much better sense of the storytelling capabilities of sound and, and what can be done to tell the story of these cicadas. But the truth is, Brandon Jacob Jenkins says we can't understand a word of it. Right. There's something that he's interested in, um, and I think it's fascinating, in the idea that the cicadas have a life of their own that we don't understand. I love the, the moment, the description from the beginning where the cicadas go on and on and his end of that prologue is the audience, was, you know, to the point where the audience thinks to themselves, is this the whole show? Yeah. Is there just cicadas <laughs> buzzing? Is that it? Is that all we're going to get? And so I do think he, he has some interest in the idea that we don't grasp what is going on in the life of these cicadas. He writes this gorgeous, and I just gave you snippets of it, this gorgeous description of the song of the cicadas about cicada love and about the love of the grass and the dirt and, and having sex and having babies and all of this stuff that fills the life of this cicada song. And we don't understand a word of it. Yeah. Why? Well, I don't know. What do you? What do you think that has to do with this story, Jackson? Well, yeah. I mean, cer- certainly has to do with the 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 kind of uh, the 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 sort of buzzing of these characters' past and their their kind of shared trauma with each other that we don't understand the reasoning for why there's such violence. Um, between each other for why there's such misunderstanding for why there's so much mischances at connection between them all. Um, and, and the kind of, you know, we're welcomed into a small moment of these characters lives, uh, for, for a short moment, but then they're gone to us. These characters are gone to us. Similarly to the cicadas, they, you know, have 13 years under the ground and are on, on top of the ground for just a moment. And then they're gone. We don't get to see the 13 years under the ground of these characters. It strikes me that that's especially true of Frank, right? The, yeah. the sort of reemergence after many years of hibernation. I mean, he's had a life, but his family hasn't seen him. Yeah, no, that's true. And and yeah, so you, you certainly have that theme. I think Cassidy has a scene that she kind of directly calls out the analogy of the cicadas and kind of uh, wonders about their connection to her and her story. She, a whole subplot that we haven't talked at all about is she has this kind of crush on her cousin Rice and they're trying to work out how exactly, whether that's appropriate or not. Um, So you, so you have all these characters kind of giving us these, this short moment above ground for them. If they are the cicada, it's this short moment above ground for them. This long history before them of, of time spent uh, uh, doing doing whatever they have done to each other, and yet we just get this short moment where we hear their buzzing, where we hear where we see the effects and kind of hear their anger, and then then it's gone to us. It's lost to us again. Yeah, it strikes me that there might be something metaphoric in like the cicada life cycle. That, that is part of the storytelling of the play, this idea that they live in, it's not, I, look, I'm not a scientist. I know <laughs> this is not exactly right, but it's close enough, okay? That they live in like hibernation or like in the womb or, you know, gr- growing as sort of underdeveloped creatures in the soil for years and years and years. And you don't know it. 
There's, I mean, there, I assume there are cicadas in the soil. I don't know. I live in Montana. Maybe there's no cicadas here, but, but I, but I'm from the Midwest where the cicadas were a very real thing, right? So I assume when I walked around in parks and in state parks and in forests and such that there are cicadas under the soil, you know, in their little shells or exoskeletons or whatever cicadas have, and that it, at whatever year they would emerge and infest, infest you know, cover everything. And I, and I wonder if there isn't some metaphoric connection here being made with the idea that this soil on this plantation, under the soil are the bodies of tortured and murdered slaves, that they're, and they are, re the, the, the racism, the violence is now re-emerging for this family in the form of the picture book, in the form of the like pickled human parts that they find in the form of the hood. These things that have been hidden in hibernation are coming out and buzzing so loudly. In fact, they have a life of their own. There was a life of torture and oppression and violence that was done like the cicadas have this song that 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 we don't understand. We didn't live it. All we have are is the way it's buzzing in our life now. Now, I, I do think my, the flaw in that interpretation, to, to, to immediately jump on my own interpretation, <laughs> is that I do think he means the cicadas to be beautiful in a way that what I just described is not. They are, though, yeah, I, I agree that they, they're kind of evocative. They kind of have this sort of uh, soundscape uh, for the whole play that is, that, is, that is beautiful to some degree. They are also oppressive, though. Um, yes, this, that's this good sort point. of this sort of like constant buzz that weaves its way through the scene. I even found myself wondering if I was the sound designer for it, whether every scene just has the buzz at a very low level underneath it. I think there's only one scene that actually calls for true silence. Um, so, so I, so that kind of just constant buzzing state ever present, um, would, would lend itself to what you're talking about. This sort of like oppressive push or something ominous outside or something, something coming back outside of these characters that they can't and, and especially the like coming to life all at once and covering everything. I mean, you discover that your grandpa has a KKK hood in his closet and pickled human parts and photo books of lynchings. And it just infests everything at once, right? And I wonder yeah. if that's not the way that cicadas do that every 13 years or 17 years or whatever. They just cover everything at once. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's this kind of uh, significant scene with Tori where she's talking about. I think it's the the night the night scene where she comes back pretty drunk and she's talking about. Is this what happens when we all die? <laughs> like I thought we were gonna be here and and like just swap stories basically, and instead we're discovering these things about our father that that we wouldn't have wanted to find out and are having 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 trouble even looking at and and grappling with. Yeah, and and it, it some of it too is about the legacy that that generations leave on the next generation and that the cicada lifestyle is very much generational, right? In fact, we named the generations of cicada. Again, I'm just referencing what little <laughs> I know from growing up in the Midwest where cicadas are a big deal. Yeah. Uh, where that like the because they come out so infrequently, that that scientists name the generations of cicadas because it's not like they're they're omnipresent. It's only every so often. Anyway, uh and I and the, the way that this play is about the generations impacting the next generation and, and the legacy that is left behind, like like it strikes me that uh, Rice, late in the play, uh, is talking about his aunt Rachel, and he uses anti-Semitic language that he's heard his mother use. And you know, in that moment, I just get this sinking feeling even reading it, that she, the way she talked about Rachel in a moment of anger has now left its mark on her son. Yeah. And that the and so I think that beyond just the denial of our grand, our dad wasn't a racist, there's also a, a message in this play, a question in this play about whether that hasn't seeped into these siblings as well. It's not just our father was a racist and we didn't know it or he pretended he wasn't, but how has that infested us too? 
And I think there's a, the there's there's many scenes that lead into that theme. Certainly that scene that you mentioned. Um, there's plenty of critique from Rachel about that. There's also the scene where Bo breaks down at the end of the play, um, where he's he's about to leave. He puts his hand on the door and he just starts crying. Um, and he can't stop and to the point that Rachel comes in and like yells at him to get him in the car and realizes that he's standing there quiet, crying and can't move. And she asks him what happened. And he says, I don't know. I can't figure out why I can't. Why don't I, I'm paraphrasing the line, but why don't I know? Um, and, and I think that's, that's a significant well, and, and part And he goes that. on to say immediately then, I don't want the kids to see me crying. Yeah. And to connect yep. it to that legacy in generations. Yeah. So, so I think there's, there's this profound, um, yeah, almost, almost unconscious passing on that is happening, um, that, that breaks forward in scenes like that one, where we get to see it kind of crack through and, and we get to see the pain of it, even if the characters won't admit it to themselves. One of my favorite kind of understated lines in the play is from uh, very late. They they just they're just about to discover that the we haven't even talked about the fact that a photo book might be worth so much money and that they're going to try to get rich off of it. Basically, so set that conversation aside for another day. But they're about to discover that late in the play, and their kids are running around playing, and they say, uh, Rachel says, "What are you two doing?" And and Cassie's wearing a lampshade on her head, uh, which you know a lampshade has echoes of the KKK hood that's about to come up. Of course, it's all foreshadowing. But what does Cassidy say? We're playing ghosts. Yeah. I love. I think Brandon Jacob Jenkins because he's so sneaking smart slips little lines in there all the time. We're playing ghosts. I think you could make that the metaphor for the whole play this family comes together <laughs> at this generational family plantation in arkansas then now I, just to be clear their dad bought it but it was like from the family so yeah. he bought it from their cousins who were letting it fall apart so i do believe this is a generational plantation and they they come together and they're playing ghosts yeah yeah, no, that's just a, such a powerful, powerful line that just slipped in there. There's so many powerful lines that are slipped in this play. So many subplots and and sub subplots. Wish we had more time to kind of talk about it. Alas, we are coming to the end of the time for the podcast. Fortunately, we don't have to stop talking about it. We can keep talking about it with all of you out there in podcast land. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about appropriate with you. Absolutely. If you've liked this conversation, any of our other conversations, or you're just looking forward to themed month next month when we talk about David Henry Huang, whatever reason you're excited about No Script, please pass us on to your family and friends. They can find us at Podbean, where we're hosted. Also, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like us on Facebook, you'll get a link to the new podcast posted there every Monday morning when we are released. So until next week when we're coming at you with our themed month... I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script the Podcast.